Um, ladies and gentlemen, I've been a little um, convicted this week. I feel like, um, you know, we're always racing around. We're racing to work and we're racing to church and, and uh, we, everything's got to be one thing after another. And, and um, you know, ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're to be still before our God at times. And uh, I think, I think in, in corporate worship like this, stillness is a good thing. A silence is not a bad thing. It's not an awkward thing. And uh, I just want to um, incorporate some of that, uh, I hope, into our service today. I want to read you something. This is uh, some, some prayers of the Puritans. And just quiet your heart and just, just listen to this. Help me, O Lord. To throw myself absolutely and wholly on thee, for better, for worse, without comfort, and all but hopeless. Understand? We're hopeless. We bring nothing to the presence of God. We bring not our works. We bring not our our good things. We have nothing. Our hope is only in Him. Give me peace of soul. Give me confidence. Give me Enlargement of mind. Give me morning joy that comes after night heaviness. Water my soul richly with divine blessings. Grant that I may welcome thy humbling in private so that I might enjoy thee in public. Give me a mountain top as high as the valley is low. Thy grace can melt the worst sinner and I am as vile as he. Yet, Thou hast made me a monument of mercy, a trophy of redeeming power. In my distress, let me not forget this. Our Father, indeed, we are a people who long to wait beneath your feet. We understand that life presents us with all kinds of issues that force us to the end of ourselves And for so many of us, we have long recognized that we are fully inadequate to make the decisions, to uh, make right choices in the face of the onslaught, uh, not only of temptation, but of complexity. And so we come, O God. Many come with heavy hearts, and we pray that that sovereign ear of grace will be open under the cries of your people and that we might find our solace in knowing that we've been heard and that we are loved. I pray, Father, that you will, in the midst of our worship service, remind us that we are... We are souls with bodies. We're not bodies with souls. But that eternity awaits us. And this veil of tears in which we walk now does not compare to the richness of the glories that await us. Our Father, for the nation in which we live and which we love, we pray. We are are being threatened again with hostilities and violence and terrorism that uh, makes September the 11th look small. And we pray, O God, for wisdom, 
for our leaders and for stamina as a nation to do what is right. Help us, O God, to find out what that is. Father, for this brief hour, might our hearts, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be brought into conformity with yours. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and return with me to Acts chapter 5. And we'll continue our study of the book of Acts. For those of you who are with us, perhaps, uh, maybe for the first time, it is our, our custom here at Gracie Van to work through a book uh, and then on special occasions take uh, a few weeks off from that study. But ultimately, the balance is to be found in God's Word and not in uh, Jimmy Young's preaching schedule. So as we work through books, we are hoping that the Holy Spirit will bring a balanced message to his people. So you follow as I read, beginning at verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. I'll read through the end of the chapter. Acts 5 at verse 17. Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with them, with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence. For they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him, God, has exalted to his right hand to be a prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little, for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. 
For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, gang, I am drawn to texts like these. Uh, this is what's called an historical narrative. It's, um, it's, a, it's a record of an event that took place in the life of the church, in the life of the apostles, and, of course, the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And all of those are just characters, but it's a story. And it's not a difficult story to understand. I mean, as I read it, I'm sure you picked up um, certain ideas that were contained in it. It's not hard to follow. It's just uh, some men were in jail. Um, the, uh, the angel of the Lord let them out. They went and did what they weren't supposed to do. They were arrested again and brought before the, the, their persecutors and, and threatened. And they, rep- they responded. And, and then the introduction of uh, Gamaliel, who gives them advice. And at the end of his advice, they say, yeah, he's right. We better keep our hands off these guys. And so they beat them up. Send them home and they rejoice in being counted worthy to suffer uh, in his name. That's the story. Now, and, and I can make all kinds of things out of it. You know, that's my job is to make the simple complex. Um, but uh, it's not that complex. It is, it's a simple story that unfolds uh, about an event that takes place in the life of the church. And there's all kinds of little things that we can spend our time on. I mean, there are some some major things said here, ladies and gentlemen. For instance, this statement about giving repentance, which is found in verse 31. The idea that repentance is a gift. We could, we could develop that for the whole 30 minutes that I have with you. The idea that God gives the Holy Spirit uh, whom God has given to those who obey him. Very key item. Very keen insight. I mean, not insight, a a statement. Something that we must all understand, ladies and gentlemen. That there is a connection between uh, the obedience of the Christian and the the work of the Holy Spirit in that life. There are are several things that we could look at, but I'm convinced there's one major climax. Kind of the apex of this whole story, which I want to take you to in a minute. But uh, before I get there, I, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things that... That Steve Brown used to call side roads. I don't know whether that name Steve Brown rings the bell, but <clears throat> Steve is retired now. He, he pastored in Kebus Cane, Florida. And he's now retired. He's still on the radio, but he's not pastoring anymore. But that was the word he, that he kind of made popular. That is, side roads in the text. Well, he's retired now. And uh, so I'm going to take his word. And um, that's what we're going to call it. They're just side roads in the text. And then I'll bring you to um, which, that, that which I think is the apex of this little story. First side road is found in verse 20. Because the language is kind of strange, at least it was to me. Um, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
Now, that's a little bit strange language to me. I want you to go out there and I want you to speak everything about Christ. About, I want to speak everything uh, that you need to know, they need to know about Christianity or about this new religion. But the word that he uses, or that his language is, go speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, gang, in the Greek language, there are two words that are translated life. There's the word bios, from which we get our English word biology. Um, that word describes life in its biological sense. You know, um, uh, heart rate and blood pressure and cholesterol and all that business. That word bios would describe all that. But there's another word, zoe. In fact, there's a little store here in, um, in East Memphis called Zoe. Well, they picked up that name from a Greek word, zoe, uh, which means life. It's life as life gets lived. It's, um, it's more than just what your triglycerides are and your pulse rate. It's living. It's life. And what the apostles are, go- are told to go out and preach is a life. They're, they're told to go out and tell people about a life. An all-consuming, all-embracing approach to life that impacts everything there is about that life. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what I'm preaching. I don't know what the rest of the world is preaching. I, I, I was about to say I don't care, but that's not true. I do care. I don't know what the rest of the world is preaching, but what I want to preach to you is life. Not life as opposed to death. But a life, a life that, that sweeps in and takes over everything, a life that includes my views of politics and literature and mathematics and history. Gang, it's a, it's a life that, that is made possible by a death. I can live. I can enjoy a life. You know, in in this common jargon we use about, get a life. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what I'm saying to you. That's what we are going to say to the world. Get a life. A life that is made possible by a death. I can live because Jesus has died. Gang, Christianity is 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 stated a little bit differently. That is, it's a view of reality. One of the things that I, that I do, I, I, you may differ in your approach, but when I'm talking to non-Christians, one of the things that I want, to, want them to get, one of the things that I want to be clear about is that what I'm saying as a representative of Jesus Christ is that Christianity is a, is a view of all of reality. Christianity is the thing that helps me integrate with reality. It's, it's, a, it's a view of all truth. And, and what I want to say to the non-Christian is, now tell me, does your view of reality, is your view of reality better than my view of reality? Because for heaven's sakes, if your view of reality is better than my view of reality, for heaven's sakes, go live that. It's kind of like, remember when Elijah was on Mount Carmel and he said, 
You know, if Baal be God, for heaven's sake, serve Baal. But if God be God, then serve Jehovah. Well, what I'm saying to the non-Christian, at least when I'm talking to non-Christians, I want them to understand that I have a life. I want you to see it and understand that it, that it includes and, and, and affects everything there is about my living. Now, does my view of reality, is my view of reality better than your view of reality? Then embrace it. You know, there's a statement that, that Paul makes in Colossians 3. He says this, when Jesus appears, who is our When Jesus appears, that Jesus, who is our life, he is our life, ladies and gentlemen. He's not an add-on. He's not an addendum. He's not an addition. He is our life. You know, um, you you go to a, a a, a retail store. You go to Papagallo's and you go in there to... um, Buy a pair of shoes. And you know, all those salespeople are, are trained, you know, to sell the pair of shoes, of course, but you also need to, by the time you check out, you need to buy a pair of shoestrings and, and a purse and, and some shoe polish. You, you go to a restaurant and you, you want a chicken sandwich. And before you can tell them you want a chicken sandwich, they want to know if you want artichoke dip. No, I don't want artichoke dip. I want, I want a chicken sandwich. My point is, it's, it's as if some people view their, their Christianity as, as an add-on, as an appetizer. And I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the essence of life, go out and speak to those people about life, this life. That's what the statement says. An angel says to the apostles, go tell them about this life. That's what we have, ladies and gentlemen. We don't have a philosophy. We don't have a set of ideals or a, a scheme of ethics. Christianity is a life. And it's made possible by a death. That's one thing that I thought was interesting in the text. Kind of a side road. Let me show you a second side road. It's the, the term that's found in verse, 30, verse 31, where Jesus is called the prince. That's a very infrequently used term there. It's the Greek term archegos, and it's only found four times in the whole New Testament. But the, the interesting thing, actually, what I'm about to tell you are some observations that I derived from a guy by the name of Bill Lane in a commentary, Bill Lane's commentary, where he... He says that the term archegos was a title in Greek literature. Um, And it was a title that had to be earned. It had certain criteria that you had to meet before you were called an archegos. And it it can be translated a lot of ways. It can be translated leader or prince. It can be translated champion or hero. Hero. And in Greek literature, this, this term that's found right here is a term that represented a certain class of men. But there were criteria that you had to meet before you could have this title. Here was the first criterion. 
The first criterion is that you had to enter battle unarmed. And in the course of the battle, you had to uh, take your enemy's weapon and slay your enemy with his own weapon. And that was the first criterion. The second criterion is, after you had defeated your enemy, you then set free all of the captives which heretofore had been the possession of the now defeated enemy. And then the third criterion was that from thereafter, you were received with great honor and dignity and reverence wherever you went. Now, all of that to say this. In Greek literature, the hero was a person that had done certain things. And at every point, ladies and gentlemen, that, terms, that term applies to Jesus Christ. I have to say to you, um, of all the Christological titles in the scriptures, like shepherd and servant and lamb and Lord, this is my favorite. Hero. He's a hero that, by the way, entered battle unarmed. And he took on his foe. And his foe had a weapon. His foe, of course, was the devil. And his weapon was death. And what did Jesus do? By golly. He took that weapon and used that weapon, death, to conquer his enemy. And as a result, set all of the captives free. At every point, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is a Greek hero. Is it your hero? That's another side road. One other. It's this whole introduction of Gamaliel. Do you know who this guy is? He was the most respected and revered rabbi of his day. He was a student of Hillel. But the the real issue is not who uh, uh, Gamaliel learned from, but who learned from Gamaliel. There was a student of Gamaliel's by the name of Saul, who ultimately became Paul, as you know. My point is, I'm I'm suggesting, but I'm betting that Paul was in the room when Gamaliel says what he says in verses 33 and following. Just an interesting note uh, as you read on in the book of Acts. Because this man, Paul, is listening to this very speech of Gamaliel's. Now, those are all side rows, ladies and gentlemen. Let me take you to what I think is the the apex of this text. And it's found in verse 29. It is a simple statement. And um, unfortunately, it consists of seven words. And unfortunately, I think some of your translations don't do it justice. If you're seated there with a, an NIV in your lap or a uh, New American Standard, I suggest to you that you've got a good translation. I'm reading from the New King James or a King James, and I'm telling you, I think both of those translations missed the mark. I went back, I looked at it myself, and there are two Greek words that are found in verse 29 that I think are somewhat bungled. And the, the idea has to, for instance, let me read you how it's translated in my translation. We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, I'm saying that's the climax of this story. But unfortunately, that word ought misses the mark, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, it's a combination of two words. I, I can go over that for you. I don't think um, 
it's interesting to you, but literally, I, I, and it, it means, or it, it should be translated, I think, it is binding to obey. One of the words is an infinitive. It is binding to obey. The point is, the NIV translates it like this. We must obey God rather than men. The American Standard translates it the same way. We must obey God rather than men. Now, this ought to, I think, is very unfortunate. Now, having said that, this is the apex of the text. We must obey God rather than men. Now, guys, real quickly, let me clear away something. Most of you already know, I think, that this verse, in combination with chapter 4, verse 29, is the foundation of a very serious doctrine. It is the, it is the basis of the doctrine of the necessity of civil disobedience. Gang, the New Testament teaches everywhere that we are to obey the government, obey the laws, pay our taxes, but there are limits. When the government prohibits what God commands, or commands where God prohibits, that government must be disobeyed. And ladies and gentlemen, church history is filled with tragic stories of how the church has suffered because of godless governments. Idi Amin, to name one. And, and very frankly, it's something that is going on even today where Christians are suffering simply because they are taking Acts chapter 5 verse 29 seriously. We must obey God rather than men. And don't kid yourself, ladies and gentlemen. You may get that chance too. It may come to our shores one day as well. But that's not really my point. This is the foundation of what is known as civil disobedience, yes. But it's more than that, ladies and gentlemen, in my opinion. It is, as I said in my title, the great hope of the church. In those seven words, it is the great hope. How is the church going to endure? How is she going to excel? How is she going to survive? In a culture that is growing more and more hostile to what she stands for. I'll tell you how. We must obey God. Rather than men. How is it, ladies and gentlemen, that this church stood? How is it that they finally conquered and, and, and their, their enemies could bring them... I mean, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, if opposition and persecution should have, could have stopped the church, she would have never gotten out of the Roman Empire. But the way that she did get out of the Roman Empire is by heeding these simple seven words. We must obey God rather than men. Now, guys, I'm convinced that that is the very heartbeat of what is going on in this story. It is the thing that I want you to take out of here. It is the thing that I want to rattle around in your soul because it is the essence of this life of ours in Christ. Every word is important. God. Gang. The highest loyalty in our lives. 
is to be God. I, I, I think you know that, but um, it bears repeating. He is not to be secondary to our children, to our marriage, to our government, to our job. We must obey God rather than men. I have a preacher friend who told a story about how he caused a huge stink. He had taken a church, and I think it's a small town in Ohio. I think it was Ohio. He had taken a small church in Ohio, and he made a suggestion at his church. And the suggestion had to do with the flags that were in the church. Now, we don't have any flags. Let's not buy any. It'll just cause strife. But, you know, there's three flags. There's the American flag. Then there's the state flag. Then there's the Christian flag. Well, this church had all three flags. But I don't know exactly how they had done it. But the American flag had the prominent place. And my poor, foolish preacher friend made the suggestion that the flags need to be re- needed to be rearranged so that the Christian flag would in no way appear secondary to either of the other flags. <laughs> what a fool he was. Cost him his job. Because he mentioned something about rearranging flags. Ladies and gentlemen, the King of Kings does not serve the United States of America. I love this land. I love this nation. I'm an American. I married an American. I begat three Americans. I love America. But ladies and gentlemen, we must obey God rather than men. Must. Not ought. Must. We must. It is binding to obey. We must. Gang, this, there, are, there are dozens of ought tos. I ought to floss daily. But I must. I must obey God. This is a description of what Immanuel Kant called a categorical imperative. This is not a discussion of what is appropriate to do. It is a discussion of what is essential to do, ladies and gentlemen. Herein lies our great calling as the people of God. We must obey God. Gang, this is not a matter of wisdom versus folly. It is a matter of life versus death. We must, must, not ought, we must obey God. We, we, yeah, us. Gang, it shouldn't surprise us that the non-Christian world doesn't obey God. But it ought to surprise us and grieve us that we don't. It's not surprising that they don't care for the Ten Commandments. What is surprising is that we don't. Child abuse is unpredictable in the world. But who is it that's guilty of it being placarded all over the national news? We. We must obey God. 
can't determine what they do. But we're supposed to be different. We must obey God. And then obey. There is nothing that is more abundantly set forth in the scriptures than the necessity, ladies and gentlemen, of obedience. To me, the clearest and the simplest statement of that is, is, comes out of Jesus' mouth in John 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Anybody not get that? Anybody not smart enough to understand those simple words? If you love me, says Jesus, keep my commandments. He who hath my commandments and keepeth them, that's verse 21. He who hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Obedience, ladies and gentlemen. The proof of loving Jesus is obedience. It's not some kind of oral profession. It's not some kind of sacramental act. It is living obedience. Living obedience. You know, there is a statement, gang, that is, um, that is found in 2 Corinthians. You know it. It says that we are, we are to bring every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. <laughs> every thought. Not simply decisions, choices, behaviors, lifestyles, but thoughts. Jesus Christ demands that there be obedience even in the way that I think. He suggests that he has the prerogative to demand obedience in the way I even think. All of it. The way I think, the way I talk, the way I choose, what I decide, where I go, who I marry... What I read, all of it, ladies and gentlemen, is supposed to be brought into submission to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. We must obey God. Rather than men. And herein lies, ladies and gentlemen, the great temptation. Obeying the voice of man or obeying the voice of God, even my voice. And very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, what it comes down to most days is, am I going to believe, am I going to obey my voice or his voice? It's a daily contest. It's a daily struggle. It's a daily battle between opposites. Rarely, ladies and gentlemen, rarely if ever does the voice of man, is, is the voice of man identical to the voice of God. Rarely. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the Christian church will stand or fall on how she heeds this categorical imperative. Our God must be obeyed rather than men. Gang, the, the, the church's greatest danger does not come from opposition from without, 
but from disobedience from within. If persecution and opposition could have stopped the church, she'd have been stopped long ago. So, you come here on Sunday mornings and you uh, want to have something that, you know, helps you. And, and I get so tired of hearing this phrase, I can. You want to come in here in church and you want to have something that you can live in your everyday life. <laughs> what do you think truth is? Truth is something worth living in our everyday life. Well, but if, if that's not something, how about this? How about this? Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. You want, you want to walk out with something? Here it is. Seven words. We must obey God rather than men. Let me state it differently. Rather than men, we must obey God. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? Before this day is over, you're going to have 10, 12 opportunities to make that choice. How is it that you're going to respond to your wife when you get home today? Well, you can listen to the voice of men or you can obey God. How is it that you're going to choose what you watch on television tonight? Well, you can listen to the voice of men or you can listen to the voice of God. How is it that you're going to respond to your kids when they just push you to the brink? Well, we must listen to the voice of man or we must listen to the voice of God. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, life is a series of figuring out whether I'm going to obey God or disobey Him. And at every point, at every point, there is a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And we have gotten ourselves in a mel of a hess, haven't we? Because we chose to listen to the voice of man. know better. Here it is. Great story. Kind of story that you make a movie out of. But it all comes down to this. We must obey. Any questions? Pretty simple. Let's go ahead. Our Father, I pray that your word would rankle around in our souls. That we might be reminded that life is a series of choices of whether we're going to obey you or disobey you. And our disobedience has led to unbelievable pain and suffering and and disaster and complication. and Father, some of us are seated in comfortable pews right this minute with a big, fat, ugly mess on our hands because we chose to obey 
the wrong voice. Please forgive us, O oh God, that we ever dreamed that the voice of man would be right and your voice would be wrong. Lord God, have mercy on your on your people who are so attracted to sin. We are enamored by all of its baubles. And we pray that you'll forgive us. And Father, I also pray for a man or a woman who are, is here today who, who has not yet learned that there are two views of reality available to him. The reality as defined by Jesus Christ or reality as defined by a godless world. And I pray that you would bring men to a saving knowledge of Christ even now. Thank you, O oh God, for the life, the life that you have given us to enjoy. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.